Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and today on the podcast, we have our regular guest, our medical director, Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. We have a special guest today. We have one of our MCHD district chiefs, April Curry. Hey, guys. And today, you know, we love that Dr. Dixon and I receive EMS patients here in Montgomery County most of the time. We've done several Monday morning quarterback episodes, and Y'all, the listeners like them, and and we like doing them. Every now and then, though, for me, when I get the super sick ones from y'all in the field, it's pretty nerve-wracking being under the microscope of multiple paramedic eyes. I, just like y'all, want want to perform. I want y'all to trust in my medical ability. We do so many educational things and training and scenarios and CEs. If, If I go in and drop the ball, that... There's, there's a level of trust there, a level of confidence that I feel very, very passionate about, and I want to make sure that that's reciprocated. It's human nature to want to succeed in those situations, but not everyone's going to go smoothly, uh, no matter who's watching. Uh, and so this was one of those struggle situations. I was lucky to have Chief Curry in the room uh, to help me wade through some pretty serious road bumps in this case. So without giving it away, April, how did the call come out for you? What did you know, and how did you prepare as you were uh, getting ready to arrive on this call? Okay, initially, the, the call was dispatched uh, as a priority two call, so it really didn't alert me to, to go to the call. It didn't add me to the call initially, um, but it was one of my crews. Um, I read the call notes. It just, you know, a patient having possibly an allergic reaction. That's, that's how the call came out. So kind of routine, didn't seem like anything crazy um so i i just decided to add myself to the call um and show up so i was a little bit after the crew uh i arrived a little bit after the crew they had already had time to make patient contact uh so in route to the call i really didn't have any preconceived ideas i thought it was pretty going to be pretty basic uh kind of run, run, run of the mill, mill allergic reaction sure yes. mm-hmm. so you arrived on scene and quickly realized that it was a good thing that your spidey sense said yeah. I need to hop yeah. this call, yeah. huh? Yeah, and I think the crew was happy too. So, uh, so yeah, I I just you know walk into uh, to the residence and uh, they're they're actually had already uh, put the patient on the stretcher was strolling out down the hallway, um, and I see the crew and I can you know they're my crew I could kind of tell they were felt a little bit of relief, uh, like hey you're here, and uh, so as they around the corner I see the patient and very surprisingly. Uh, changed my thought process about this patient and the significance of it. What did you see that made you, it was pretty obvious, this wasn't, very, very this obvious. wasn't a, a needle in a haystack. Right. Uh, so the patient was somewhat responsive, but the very first thing you see was her mouth. She had extreme, extreme angioedema. Uh, her, her tongue was protruding out of her mouth. Uh, that was the very first thing that I saw on this patient. So now you're in transition from residence to the truck. You've got obvious severe angioedema. We know what goes on your differential. Fire some of those off for us. Yeah, I mean, it goes, uh, number one for us would be allergy. Was there anything else with allergy? Is there, is there a rash? Is there a known allergen? Is there a history suggesting some sudden onset after 
some allergen. Uh, is there vomiting or GI sy symptoms? You know, have a listen to the podcast we did on this. I learned a ton from it. Uh, the other thing, the probably one of the more common, is asangioedema. So it can happen with with uh, angiotensin uh, receptor blockers as well, but it's mainly with ACE inhibitors. But these are meds like enalapril, ramapril, something that ends in pril. Uh, and it's a, it's a complex mechanism, but essentially they can't clear their bradykinin and they develop angioedema. It doesn't have to be right after they start the medication. They could be on the medication for a number of years. The last one, which is uh, I've only seen a few times in my career, and most of the time we're lucky patients know the diagnosis is they have a C1 esterase deficiency. They have a hereditary disorder that causes this type. And the, the other types would be traumatic or a traumatic burn, or I've seen it when the patient bit their tongue, had severe angioedema. So those are kind of the, the differentials in order of uh, that they occur. I would put, actually, I'd put trauma up beneath uh, allergic, and then, or I'm sorry, it would be ACE, allergic, trauma, C1 esterase. Yeah, the other I'd fire in there just for listeners' sake. Other times I've seen it, there's there's two more for me. And infectious causes, uh, you know, abscesses, yeah. uh, you know, anytime you think about and malignancy, swelling. Yeah, I left out malignancy. Yeah, as malignancy. Well. Yeah. And then with if for those of you out there that listen that are in transfer services that transfer patients on uh, TPA yeah. on Altaplace. Um, which is becoming less and less common with the movement of, of TNK and single-dose uh, TPA into the, the world of, of stroke care. Uh, folks that get TPA, uh, Altaplay specifically, can get pretty significant angioedema. Yes. So that's one where if you see that in your transfer truck, you turn the TPA off. The really weird thing about TPA-associated angioedema is it's often contralateral to the stroke side for whatever reason. And that, to me, is just bizarre. Uh, but anyhow, that's a pretty good rundown of the differential. You asked and brought the patient in with really most of those questions answered. Take the easy ones first. There's no trauma. So trauma is not an issue. There's no history of malignancy. There's no history of hereditary angioedema. So you y'all really focused pretty heavily in on anaphylaxis and ACE angioedema. So where did we get with those two? Tell the listeners what you, as you tried to peel back the layers, what'd you find? Well, we did, we did have very limited information for this patient anyway. Uh, just didn't have a lot of information. Even the onset was a little bit skewed. Like uh, the, the caretakers were a little vague about when it started. So the onset, I think for a lot of these things is important to know um, and kind of help with the differentials. But we just had very limited information. Um, so initially, the, the crew had immediately just went with some type of allergen uh, based on the fact that the med list, which is what, you know, that's the first thing I asked, like, where's the med list? Let me see the med list. Um, you know, so they had given, pulled up the, the epi and started that route um, at initial contact. Um, Really good call. Yeah. Really good call. I'll just remind listeners to have a, have a listen to that podcast. The number one reason people die of anaphylaxis is we either don't give epi or we give it too late. 
So yeah, the crew did did a really good job uh, pulling the trigger on that soon, um, but then we're kind of kind of at a loss too. So uh, with the you know with her tongue swelling, she also it looked like maybe the side of her face was swelling as well. Uh, so they were just they were just pretty pretty lost about like what is happening because there was nothing that that really you know I mean it looked like angioedema but what's the cause how how do we know what happened you know um, so at that point we were we were just getting some vitals getting to the ambulance and and you know her her blood pressure was cycling and of course it came back at low uh, I believe maybe 70 systolic was the initial blood pressure so we addressed that with push dose and we got push dose yes and then we uh then we started an ep, uh, epinephrine drip perfect and this is a case where if we're going to go back to our our presser protocols and our recent changes here we've pretty clearly defined that norepinephrine is our presser of choice except in cases of bradycardia and anaphylaxis anaphylaxis would be on the list for this patient for sure so moving from push dose epi to drip epi was totally a reasonable uh, thought process. What'd y'all have from an airway standpoint? I mean, market angioedema, what were your airway thoughts uh, on scene as you were getting ready to leave? Obviously, uh, be prepared for, for the worst, uh, because with that, you know, we're, we're going to have some roadblocks, you know, if we have to manage that airway. Now, this patient, fortunately, uh, was oxygenating okay in the 90s we had oxygen saturations in the 90s with the patient not not being in like distress like no obvious distress as far as respiratory distress um so just a sick patient overall but uh and initially uh they wanted the patient transported to a a further facility further away and so that was the decision i said we're we can't do that we're going to go to the closest facility manage this patient uh and so at th- that time, our priority was kind of managing the uh, getting the patient hemodynamically stable um, while being prepared for airway compromise. Which would have been a surgical airway in that situation, exactly. probably no ifs, ands, or buts, yeah. huh? Yeah, no way that we would have uh, tried to paralyze this patient and without, you know, other resources. Now, Chief, was there any, any other findings on the clinical exam that would lead you to an allergen? So any rash, no. any wheezing, any no. GI symptoms at all? Nothing. That uh, is a tough super, one. Super, super, super It's a tough weird. one. Yeah. With the swollen face, I think your infectious gets, maybe gets a little bit higher. So, so still out there. And did you, did you notice a pril medicine or an ACE inhibitor on the no. med list? And, and that was the first thing I looked for is I looked at the med list, looked for rashes, uh, any of that. The facial swelling was, was kind of big for me too. Like it wasn't just her, her, you know, her yeah, tongue. Yeah, usually it's just lips and tongue. And, and it looked like, like the side of her face. And actually even in the call notes, it said, you know, her jaws look swollen and it was just like the right side of her face. So just super, super unusual with no findings of like how this started, where it came from. So thankfully I was staffing the closest hospital yes. to this uh, unfortunate patient <laughs> he's, he's being very cheeky <laughs> it was when when they rolled through the door I saw the same thing that Chief Curry saw when she walked to the bedside it was no ifs ands or buts if not the worst angioedema on the top 10 list if we're going to do a David Letterman top 10 list it was on the top 10 list of my worst angioedemas I mean her tongue was just visibly protruding so I knew that 
definitive airway was going to be a challenge at best. And then to try to back into patient stability and a differential, this was just exceedingly complex. So I wasn't exactly sure which direction to go, honestly, because there were so many unanswered questions. You know, I've only had a couple of similar ones like this, and I, I took the same approach that April did, is I, I treat empirically. If, if we don't know, I think it's safe to treat empirically for allergy, and I did the same thing. I gave IMEPI, I gave the other stuff that doesn't matter, uh, and then I put the patient on an epinephrine, a dilute epinephrine drip, and kind of prayed that it would get better, and it, in, sadly, in one case, it just didn't. But, yeah, I mean, I, I totally am – I think that was a smart move. I, I would totally recommend doing that. I mean, there's no downside. Talk to us. I mean, now we have this patient with a compromised airway, definitely have patency problems. Give me your thought process on how you're going to manage this because now it's, it's, it's more – it's definitely emergent, definitely have patency problems. What's your game plan? I, I, first and foremost, I agree with April – her airway for however long it was going to be, there was no signs of patency loss. It was just patency pending, and it was a second-by-second second situation. Just There was no strider. There was no hypoxia. She was altered, but not in distress, I would say. She, she wasn't able to really follow commands. So I knew that while... I would say in that second when I first saw her that her airway was grossly patent. I didn't feel confident that it was going to be patent in 30 seconds later. So I always try to operate from a differential diagnosis-based progression, but this is one where, honestly, I had no clue. I scoured the list for an ACE inhibitor or an ARB or something, and it wasn't there. There were no other signs of anaphylaxis, and our crew thankfully had been very aggressive with anaphylaxis treatment and had seen no real improvement. So I doubted anaphylaxis just because my general thought was, even if it was severe anaphylaxis with epi, epi, epi drip and no budge, I sort of honed in on the, on the facial swelling, the asymmetry there that pointed against anaphylaxis for me. So I said, okay, I, I think, I don't know where we are here. I'm not sure what it is. Is this some sort of infectious situation? But what flipped this case on its head was there was just the obvious severe tongue angioedema. So I sort of changed from my normal process and said, I've got to act and we'll figure this out later. So we've got to get the blood pressure up. We've got to get full monitoring in place and we've got to get a surgical airway set up ready. Like that's what we have to do first. I can't intubate her yet or even try without having some hemodynamic stability because I'm going to be going from plan A to plan C more than likely. If I if we can't pass an endotracheal tube, we're going to be doing a surgical airway. So we started with push dose. We started with vasopressor drip. We started with fluids and continued exactly what the crew, what our crew was doing in the hospital setting. And it took probably to get monitoring into place, to get the surgical setup, to get suction and RT ready and nursing staff ready. I tried my in my most calmest manner to explain to everyone this is not a walk in the park. This is we have to have every I dotted and T crossed. And of course the patient had difficulty getting all of our vital sign data 
appropriately. We had trouble maintaining a sat. We had trouble getting blood pressures repeatedly. So just like y'all in the field, it happens sometimes. You want all those vital signs. You want the heart rate, the blood pressure, the respiratory rate, the end title, the sats. And of course, in this case, because it was going to be insult to injury, I struggled to get all the vital sign pieces into place. And the folks in the room were, were sort of pushing for action. I wanted to act. But I said, we can't do anything till we know our blood pressure is good, till we've got a reliable sat pleth in place. And that probably took us. I, my memory timer is always at risk, but I think that probably took five to seven minutes, which seemed like an eternity looking at the tongue the entire time. So we'll roll into some of the real-life struggles during intubation, and this is the part where hopefully y'all listeners understand that there are difficult airways that are difficult airways for anyone and everyone. And I'm not sure, maybe this is ego talking, but this one would have been tough for anyone. This was as tough of an airway as I've ever had in the hundreds that I've dealt with over, over my career. This is, if not the toughest, it's on the, on the metal stand for sure. So first and foremost, my plan was to start with video and to try to be as set up and prepared and have the patient as pre-optimized uh, as possible and that went pretty well we had access we had a, uh, a a really functional IO thank you all that was that was really excellent to have because we struggled with peripheral access due to some other issues in this patient and the tongue was enormous past the blade was able to just absolutely clearly see the cords on the screen very quickly there wasn't much difficulty on attempt one with seeing the cords. It looked like the cords were in a tunnel as opposed to the big open cavern that usually is the, uh, you know, the hypopharynx and, uh, uh, you know, the superglottic area. It was like looking through a tunnel to the cords. And so I attempted what, what we teach. Uh, attempt, attempt number one was with a bougie. I actually went with a bougie only just due to space concerns. And of course, you run into every possible no pun intended, hang up in a situation like this. The, uh, the tube just hung on the retinoids, and I tried 90-degree twist, 45-degree twist. I tried ramrod, everything, and I could not get the tube off the retinoids. Um, so I, I pulled the tube and said, I'm going to go bougie only, no tube. And then, of course, the bougie hung, hangs on the first tracheal ring, just like you know, it's like every single thing that can go wrong here goes wrong. And twist, turn, maneuver, I could not get the boozy off the first tracheal ring anteriorly. So I've hung up posteriorly and anteriorly, and the sat started to drop at that point. And so we pulled everything and went to bag. So uh, by that point, I was dripping with sweat, uh, clearly frustrated because we could see the cords. I got the tube right at the retinoids. I got the bougie through the cords and failed really two failures within one there in that first intubation attempt. So we bagged back up and I said, all right, if that didn't work, let's change equipment slightly and see if we can have better luck with the rigid stylet. So switched out to rigid stylet. Does that sound like a reasonable approach to you? Would you have done anything different? Yeah, the only, the only let me back up and ask you, what did you sedate with and did you use a paralytic? Because I know we've kind of differed on our approach to these particular type of patients before as far as paralysis versus sedation only intubation. Sedation only. Okay. 
Yeah, that's what I would have done. I, I have one that I went with paralysis. Dr. Petka, I've talked about a couple of years ago that I, I thought could have gone better. And I, if I had to take back, I would have just sedated and made, made sure I could, could have a look or some modicum of success before I paralyzed. Once you take away that respiratory drive, it's, it could be a, a race to the bottom. Well, this is one where if she had been moving or if she had vomited, I would have wished I had paralyzed her. Uh, she did not. She did not vomit, and she did not move or thrash at all. So we got what we wanted out of that. I was ready to paralyze if I needed to, uh, but I really honestly thought my chances were probably, you know, from a pretest probability standpoint, pretest success, I thought I had 50-50 chance at best. So in that situation, I was – in my mind, just as committed to, to a surgical airway, which was not a, a thin neck. There was swelling in the face. I wasn't 100% sure what I was going to be cutting into. So there was that piece of the puzzle, too. Um, so attempt, we, we were able to bag back up pretty easily. There wasn't a whole lot of complication there. Is that how you remember it, yeah. Chief? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it, it seemed like when, once we could see, get past the tongue, it yes it looked different but it seemed like it wasn't going to be that difficult especially when you were you were sitting there just like what is happening why isn't this why isn't this budging um but yeah that's that's the hardest part of it is because it really did seem like i had it straight away like single attempt single pass right at the cords and whether it was a tube hanging or the bougie hanging uh, that attempt one was very stressful attempt two with the rigid stylet honestly I don't have any other great explanation here other than to say I missed it. I, we, the twos, the, the cords were just as visible. There was no bleeding. There was no new swelling. There was no vomit. It looked the same on attempt two as it did attempt one. Uh, I just missed. We I passed the tube and retracted the the stylet, and there was no there was no end title. So that was a pretty quick. It must have just, you know slid posteriorly into the esophagus. I don't have a really good answer other than I missed. Um, So back to the BVM. And then we start to bag the patient, and it gets really confusing, as if it couldn't get more confusing or more stressful. The patient is on a finger pulse ox that we were using. We were having some confirmation issues. The patient was on the hospital monitor, and the patient was on the defibrillator monitor. So we really have three monitors in place. And the pharmacist says, hey, the heart rate's in the 30s. And I had the surgical airway set up, and I said, all right, hand me the, hand me the scalpel. And the nurse says, no, it's in the 60s. So I'm looking at the hospital monitor, 68, the defibrillator monitor, 39. And Did you have a SAT at that point? or We had a SAT and a heart rate on the finger probe that was in the 60s, heart rate, SATs of 92. So at that <laughs> At that point, I honestly wasn't thinking with my 100% clear mind. I mean, I was absolutely frazzled. This was uber difficult. I would love to say that I was cool, calm, and collected, and really taking an itemized, stepwise approach. But it's just so frustrating when you can see the cords and you know where you've got to go. You've been there hundreds of times, and it's, it's like there's an invisible wall there. So I made the quick maybe correct maybe incorrect I'll let you chime in but I I said all right I'm going to go with a tiebreaker finger probe reads heart rate in the upper 60s with a sat of 92 
the hospital monitor reads the same thing. I have no idea why the defibrillator monitor is different. I didn't really take time to look at the morphology and to see if there was some sort of double counting or some other issue going on. Or I don't half know counting. that anybody would have had the state of mind to parse hairs, but I would say that's, I mean, that's real life though, right? All we have is the patient and we have our data and sometimes those match and sometimes they don't match. You have to make your best assessment, which I think you did. And I think I would have gone with you. If I had 92, knowing they're not going to die from 92 and I had a heart rate in the 60s and I had been able to successfully rescue before with the bag, I would have believed my rescue and I'd, I would have had a, tried to change equipment or change something uh, before I went to surgical. Knowing I, that there's that fine line, you, you want to wait and give them as much chance for success, but understanding that Dr. Patrick and I, our service here, as you go from first attempt to second to third, your probability of successfully placing an airway from above goes down, regardless of provider that's doing it. And it's, uh, uh, it's a crapshoot. You just have to, you have to make the best decision you can at the time. And I think that was probably a reasonable one. I asked for the scalpel at one point and turned around, saw the monitor hospital, saw the finger probe and sat it down and said, I'm going to take one more look. It's just really hard for me to pull the, the rip cord on a surgical airway when I just saw the cords. It's so much easier if you're, if you're unable to get into the mouth, if there's so much blood, vomit, crushed face, burn, whatever it is. If I can't see the cords at all, there's only one way to get there. But if I just had the device in my hand and I could see the cords, it's really hard to make that incision. And I elected to give attempt one a second chance, and I went back with the bougie, and thankfully, smooth passage, felt the rings, positive end title, passed the tube easily. Third time was a charm instead of a strikeout in this case, thankfully, and I immediately needed to change my shorts. Um, I, the, the, really, the best part of it is the calmest person in the room was standing beside me, and that was Chief Curry, and that goes a long way to keeping the situation calm. I wasn't yelling or stomping. Internally, I was very frazzled. Externally, I'm sure I was moderately to severely frazzled, but it was really excellent to have one of our folks right there beside me who knew exactly the stepwise process that I was going down. I was trying to practice what I preach here. And even in those tough situations, I, I'm going to get nervous too. Uh, so in the end, sometimes it's uh, better to be lucky than good and I took all the luck I could get in that situation and was very happy uh, but it was definitely one of the most stressful airways that I've had really ever um, so I was I was thankful to have some good help and some good hands and uh, you know the RT the pharmacist the ED nursing staff the MCHT crew that was in the room we had a really solid crew of people in there who were doing their jobs closed loop communicating working together, there wasn't friction or back and forth or uh, other than my own that I created. The, the rest of the team did really an excellent job. So I couldn't have done it without any of those folks. And leads us into the what happened portion as we wrap up. I, I followed up some in the hospital chart and it seemed like all of the consultants who saw the patient were concerned about all of the same things I was concerned about. Infection, anaphylaxis, some sort of 
idiopathic angioedema. So no clear cause was found at the point I last looked. And this is a situation where, from a learning point standpoint, we have to act without complete information. We have to act without a clear differential diagnosis winner a lot of times. And that can be a thing that locks all providers up is the need to know prior to acting. And that's just not possible in the job that we picked. So with that patency hanging off the cliff, in the end, it didn't go the way I would like it to go. We're not going to put that one up on YouTube for a learning video by any stretch of the imagination. But we got where we needed to go without significant prolonged hypoxia or bradycardia. And so I feel like that was a success, even though it wasn't perfect. So let's wrap it up. By the way, doctor, you just did put that up on YouTube. No, I mean... (laughs) I mean the video. I'm of teasing it. No you. I'm just taking. I'm just taking jabs at you. I couldn't resist. I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, now this is a good one. I mean, these are the ones that we need to be talking about. There's, it's, it's super, super hard. And I'll echo what Casey says. When I get to be and work with our people, it makes me feel better to have them in the room. Oh, it I absolutely would, I would does. Because they're Patrick. we train the same way, and <laughs> and hopefully you see us practice what what we t- preach here. Definitely. Yeah, it, it, it is a relief to, to walk in and see you guys, for sure. <laughs> Next time you walk in, it can be just a, a belly pain. I'll be fine with that. Get me a CT scan, get some pain medicine. I'll stand next to you every time. You can lob, <laughs> we can do a little slow pitch next time. That was a, was that a, was a 100, 101 mile an hour slider. I, I wasn't hitting that one. No way, shape, or form. Wrapping it up. Sometimes surgical airway may be plan A. It may be plan B. You have to be ready, have to have your equipment, and know your steps. Fortunately, we didn't get there in this situation, but close as as I've been in a while. Setup, preparation should be standard, should go without any real second thought. That should be true front brain material where your setup and your suction and your maximal oxygenation, your NPOP airways, your IV access, your push-dose presser mix, all those things. We talk about those all the time on the podcast. But in situations like this where you have a giant weight on one side of the scale that is angioedema, you don't want confusion or frustration or, oh, shoot, I forgot this one thing, when your scale is already so laden with the big weight of angioedema. It's hard to perform a surgical airway with visible cords. I know I've been in run reviews with medics. I've been in discussions with my partners. This is probably the first time that I've ever gotten close to a crike where I could see the cords and couldn't get anything through them. So I realize now that's a really difficult decision and that it's easy to sort of grab onto the fact that I can see it, I can see it. But if the patient decompensates, it doesn't matter what you can see, you have to be able to pass the tube through said cords for it to be beneficial for the patient. So if you can't get there for whatever the reason, you have to still be willing to move to to the surgical airway. And lastly, we got to sort through difficult, disconcordant, discombobulated, unclear, muddy, murky information. And in that situation, my thought process was, all right, I'm going to have to have a tie break here somewhere. I had two monitors saying one thing and one saying another. So that's the way I use my mental scale. We're going to have to do that in ways that we can never really describe. The next call that you run, Chief Curry, may involve some situation you could never even come up with but the hard part about our job is using that incomplete information when it is incomplete to still make a decision to go forward so thank you all for joining us today thank you all for uh, wading through the 
the muck on this one with me. I appreciate anything you want to add before we close out. Great, great case. Great job, guys. And really, really good by the crew. Great differential. Great early treatment. You know, in, in this one, we may never know. And that's the frustrating thing about some of these cases of angioedema is really deep down, we may never know. And we don't know, and I'd argue we don't know in a lot of these patients. They just get better. Well, as always, thanks for joining us here on the podcast. If you have feedback, questions, ideas for future podcasts, email us at podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a like, leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Subscribe. Subscribing to the podcast is important, so I'm going to add that to my end of the cast spiel here. Uh, we want to list. We want more listeners. We want to grow. We love. We love your all's feedback when it comes our way. We've gotten uh, several podcast-related questions over the last month, so the back and forth engagement is why we're here and why we do it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with a new episode soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.